Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Yukon Huskies. Perhaps their most complete performance of the college basketball season in a 75-56 win over the Lady Balls of Tennessee. No reigning National Player of the Year in Paige Beckers, still out with a knee injury, and it doesn't matter. The UConn Huskies sent a message to longtime rivals Tennessee with a 75-56 win, uh, and you just know that Renee wants to jaw about it. Renee, ah! what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, my thoughts are no one gave us any kind of grace, which I don't expect for UConn. So <laughs> no one cared when we lost Paige. Now, that's not to say that no one cared that Paige got hurt. So I want to be very careful. Yeah. Everyone was concerned that Paige got hurt because you want to always see the players play on the court. But no one was really concerned about rankings and things because when Paige got hurt, I think we went on to lose like two of our next three games after her injury. And it was the big talk of the town. Again, rightfully so. But it's tough when you lose a player like Paige Beckers, who was the national player of the year, not just on her team. You know, you could be your team's MVP or you could be the whole MVP of the whole National Collegiate Association, all of that. She was that. So, yes, UConn had to recalibrate a little bit. And then the rivalry with UConn and Tennessee is back, as we all know. And it's exciting. I think it's exciting for the fans. It's exciting for alumni, of course. I saw Swin online talking her talk. And, you know, I'm liking and commenting. And so i just going to say we love to see it. And for me, it wasn't even just about Tennessee because, yes, Tennessee is Tennessee <laughs> and UConn, Tennessee. But we were the number 10 team going against the number 17. And we're trying to climb that ladder. So, for me, I'm like... Yes! I'm starting to see. This is why no one wants to give UConn Grace or the Lakers or the Yankees <laughs> or any other team that has won consistently uh, over the years, certainly as consistently as UConn has, because it's like, okay, no National Player of the Year. We're still coming with the nation's number one recruit uh, back from injury to absolutely put the grill marks to Tennessee, FUD with 25 points. Yeah. Seven of nine from three. I mean, that's just the kind of this is why when a, a Titan like UConn stumbles, you got to get your shots in because, you know, the reinforcements oh, they are gonna on get the way. The shots in. Oh, boy. And did I feel the shots? And then another thing. So something happened on the broadcast. I don't even remember when it was filmed. So I saw some Tennessee fans. They were talking to me online about like, what did I mean about Coach Ariema built women's basketball? What I was answering a question about Coach Ariema, no, he didn't build women's basketball. No, that's not against Pat Summit. Basically, what I was saying was that Coach Ariema did a lot for women's basketball, mm -hmm. as well did Pat Summit. Uh, so I, it wasn't a slight to Pat Summit. It was just saying to me, Coach Ariema means a lot to women's basketball. Didn't mean to say it in a sense that he built it by himself. I thought that would be water is wet news. I don't ever want to fight. Like, that's another thing that people... <laughs> I 
don't be caring enough to even go at people. Like it's not, I would never knock down somebody else. So I just wanted to address that. No, Coach Ariema didn't build women's basketball on his own. Come on, people. And water is wet news. No, he didn't. I didn't mean it that way. I was just answering your question about Coach Ariema saying that I meant he means a lot. So does Pat Summit, the late, great Pat Summit. And me saying that Coach Ariema and Pat Summit helped build women's basketball is not a slight to all the other coaches that helped too. I'm just giving love to coaches. It's not a slight to all the other coaches. The growth of women's basketball is all love. But And let me just say, I bleed blue. So of course I was loving that win. That was a big game. It's a big rivalry. And I hope it continues. And I hope it stays as fun as it is now. That's just how I feel. I don't think anything's changed other than noise from the outside. Uh, James wants to be here. Uh, we're building with James, and we think we have the best chance to win with James. So, you know, I don't think anything's changed on the inside, in our locker room, in our communication. It's just all the noise from the outside. In the uh, continuing James Harden slash Ben Simmons news, uh, Coach Steve Nash, as the Nets skid, continued yep. as the, the skid continues. Steve Nash was asked, well, what's the deal with James Harden? A lot of rumors out there about a trade, any, any fire to accompany the smoke. And, and Steve said pretty authoritatively, no, every indication is James wants to be here. We know that our best chance to win is with James Harden on the roster. We are not going to trade James Harden before the deadline. He then added <laughs> before the deadline, <laughs> Renee, what do you make of Nash's comments? Uh, and do you think, I, I mean, there's a, there is a lot of smoke here. What do you think? Does James Harden uh, remain in Brooklyn this time next season? Will we see him in a Nets uniform? Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there. I always say this. I don't know what people want the coaches to say. Like, hypothetically. Steve has to say this. He has to say the exact thing that he said. It's textbook. It's right. It could even be true. But we know that he has to say that regardless of if it was true or not. You have to say those things. We're not going to trade him. He wants to be here, you know, because you say all those things because while a player is still on your roster, you need that player to feel like the team is behind them, that the coaching staff is behind them. Even if you are looking to trade them, I've seen, you know, we've seen teams be buddy-buddy with a player, and then yep. the next day they're gone. So it's not to say that that doesn't mean that there's never going to be a trade with James Harden. It's just to quiet the noise. He even addresses it. There's a lot of noise on the outside where it's coming from. Usually when there's smoke, there's fire. So I'm sure that there were conversations that were had to see if a deal could be made, if there was or not, because to that point, teams are shopping everybody all the time. I don't know if people realize this, but teams are always, there's always a team that's at the bottom and there's always a team that's looking to level up somewhere else. Because of that, there's always going to be conversations. So I don't know if we're going to see James Harden to answer your question next year down the line. I really don't know because I really do believe when there's smoke, there's fire. Um, will they trade him before the deadline, which is exactly what Steve Nash said? I don't think so, because probably with somebody like him, meaning James Harden, there's going to be so many things that have to be in on the deal. Draft picks. Who else goes in on the deal? What else are you throwing in? Is it a three-way trade? So I agree. There's something going on over there. So the Nets are currently in seventh place, 29 and 24. They are flirting with the play-in, which I 
I don't really believe this, but I kind of believe this. The Nets are incentivized to not have home court. Let's just like put that out there. Okay. I'm not saying the Nets Away are, court advantage. Is that I'm, not, I'm not saying they're necessarily tanking to get Kyrie on the court for as many games as possible. I'm just saying <laughs> that the incentive is there. Okay. So the Nets are sliding. They're in seventh. Um, I think part of what complicates this is James Harden is the second highest paid player of the NBA, makes $44.3 million, which is still a crazy number to me <sighs> this, uh, this season. And the question along with, like, who can afford him is, is the James Harden who has been up and down as a member of the Nets, is the James Harden that we have seen this season – the James Harden that Philly or whoever would get going forward. So I think that's a significant part of this. Uh, I will say that, you know, James smartly didn't sign his extension, which I think is just smart business in today's NBA. Give yourself as many options as you can. He has a player option he, and uh, he can either sign that or not uh, at the end of this season. Um I I really think – first of all, of course, Steve Nash has to say this, right? The window is now for the, the Nets. Yeah. With all the crazy shit that has happened, the multiple asterisks that will be attached to this team, they kind of – tomorrow is not promised for the Brooklyn Nets. You don't know what the laws regarding COVID are going to be in New York going forward. Are those going to be changed? Or are they not going to be changed? Uh, Kyrie Irving's status going forward is unclear. KD has struggled with injuries. It kind of feels like let's do this now. And if they win, yeah, if they get to the finals, the conversation. Or win, but the conversation is completely different, right? Now the Nets yeah. can say, hey, maybe let's get another one. Like this is a, a proof of concept that this can happen. Well, um, you know, I can remember. Not to get you, I can remember no, when this conversation was about Kyrie. I don't know if people remember. It seems like yeah. this season was like two seasons worth of stuff. But in the beginning, the conversation was around trading Kyrie because he can't play at home for the Brooklyn Nets. We heard all the exact same trade scenarios that we're hearing right now for James Harden. So this team has gone through this situation before. And to that point, of Steve Nash saying that, you know, they're backing them and they're not going to trade them. Well, he, the same thing happened with Kyrie Irving and he's still here. We're talking about the away court advantage that they may have in the playoffs. So, you know, they may stick together. It could all just be outside noise. We know the media can do that. The media can start a conversation that has no validity and make that same conversation grow into a whole situation that never happened in the first place. So if that is the case, wow. That's shocking. But, I mean, we've seen the same thing before with Kyrie Irving and all the trade rumors. Here, let me lay out the most likely pathways for James Harden to exit the Nets if he so chooses to do that uh, from an article written by uh, ESPN's Nick Friedel. Option one is he exercises his player option and then signs his extension for like $270 million with the Nets Woo! five years. Next option is he declines his player option, signs a four-year $200 million deal uh, with some team that wants James Harden to play for them and can afford that salary. And at this point, uh, ESPN's Bobby Marks has projected that that's going to be the Pistons, the Orlando Magic, and the San Antonio Spurs. And that certainly does not seem like the kind of team that has the ascendancy 
arc that James Harden is looking for. And then finally, which seems like the most likely considering the recent history of the NBA, when a superstar says, I want to go there, it doesn't matter what the numbers say, what everything else says. Usually what happens now is the team figures out a way to get that player there. They'll figure out a way. They'll figure out a way. So uh, in this option, Harden uh, would sign his player option, then sign uh, his extension with the the Nets, and then that would be traded to whatever team. And, of course, the other team, in this case, if it was the Sixers, would also, when they'd be acquiring Harden, they'd understand that, like, he is going to sign that extension. So yeah. uh, those are the options available to James Harden, all of which is to say what James Harden decides to do will have an immense influence on the outcome of this. If the Nets look like the most likely chance for him to win, he'll stay there. If the Sixers look like the most likely chance for him to win, he will go there. And that's it. Speaking of trades, are anything uh, Hawks with a tough loss against the Mavericks this weekend and a marquee matchup if you're an NBA fan. Uh, Trey versus Luka is always fun. Uh, but had been on a run of 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 late and have seemed to have steadied the ship. Are there any kind of moves, any things that you could see uh, that the Hawks need to do to kind of strengthen up? Yeah, you know, for me, I think what we need to do is is strengthen up when it comes to to our mentals and how we prepare for the game. I think, you know, that was one of our toughest losses of the season, if you ask me. And it's not because it was the Dallas Mavericks. It was because of how the game played out. They had no Christoph Porzingis. They were missing some of their key guys. And then Luca got in foul trouble. We had three fouls in the first half and then right in the third quarter. Actually, he might have four fouls in the first half. Right in the beginning of the third quarter, he gets his fifth foul and has to sit the bench basically the whole third quarter into the fourth. And we just didn't take advantage of opportunities, of fouls. So I would say, you know, this is – I know people are going to get tired of hearing about this, but they this is how sports work. This is why people pay a lot of money to those veterans that you're like, why is he on the team? You have to have a certain mindset every day. When you're in pro sports, there's no, oh, this is an easy win. I know it sounds good, but you look at the Pacers, you look at Orlando, it doesn't matter. You look at us, you can get beat by these teams if you don't play well. And so there's no gimme games. And it looks like sometimes we play to the level of our competition. And it's like, why? Because we'll go and we'll play Toe for toe with a Phoenix team, a Phoenix Suns team who we know was smoldering hot. No Mm. one could beat them. They're on a roll. They have a streak of like 11, 9, 11 games. I don't know, a lot of games. And then we come in there and we play a certain level of basketball, knowing that we have to play that level of basketball, and we win. And then we go and we match up with the Mavs and we see, oh, they're missing this guy, that guy. And no, they're probably not thinking that. It's the subconscious. It's the your foot's not on the pedal. You don't have that same energy. And so – what we got to do is keep that same energy. I don't know necessarily know if we need to make moves or trades or nothing like that, but what we got to do every night is play like we were coming off of that seven-game lose streak. I mean, that's just how I feel. It's not moves, it's, it's mentals. What about you? Yeah. What's going on with the Knicks? Y'all Gosh. making any moves? What y'all trying to do? <sighs> well, there's a lot of rumors <laughs> out there, and I think that the most likely thing that you will see is some – sort of move, whether it's Kemba Walker or Alec Burks, who I think Alec Burks has been quietly balling a longtime bench guy who's been asked really to kind of play both out of position and in a role that he's not used to, like carrying a lot more of the offensive and creative load than I think he's ever done in his career. And I think he's playing really well. It's just 
this is not usually what his job is. So I think he's a player that could help a team, and there's been a lot of rumors about him. I think what most likely, though, you're going to see is not necessarily a move that brings a player back, like Darren Fox's for, of the Kings has been one rumor that uh, Brian Windhorst yeah, reported on one. his pod said he, they're interested in him. I'll just say that I love Fox. I don't know that that's a great fit with Julius Randle. They played two different positions but have very similar games. They both need to get to the rim. Yep. If multiple players need to get to the rim, there needs to be space to go to the rim. I'm not sure <laughs> in the current makeup of the New York Knicks with it. <laughs> You know, who uh, we start Mitchell Robinson, who's out there lumbering around trying to block shots. I, that's not necessarily there. It's already hard for Julius to get there. It'd be really tough for uh, for Fox to get there. That's it. I like him. I think most likely what you're going to see is a move to clear space for Cam Reddish, who they acquired, and I think who they want to give a chance to. Uh, Cam has been a former Hawks player, as, as yeah. you well know, was, was pretty outspoken about his desire to have a bigger role in whatever team he plays for. And I think that the Knicks at least want to give him a chance to see what that is like. So I would expect to see some, you know, Kemba kind of like a salary dump move to bring back assets, move Alec Burks to somebody who can help and clear some space for, for Reddish to see what he's got. And so is it, is that just wrapping up this season? Is this season just kind of like in, in y'all's minds, is the season a wrap at this point? In my mind, it's not a wrap. It's about seeing what RJ has. It's about seeing what Grimes has. It's about seeing what IQ has. What kind of players are they? And can they fit with Julius? Can they fit with Evan Fournier? Like, and how could they fit with them? I think it's about finding that out. It doesn't make any sense to me to like make moves to try and like make noise in the playoffs when let's let's be honest, like there's nothing out there right now that's going to do that. Right. Let's get our players somehow on the same page and get to a place where we can actually analyze our young players and understand what kind of ceiling they have and just see what they you see what they have. There's a huge energy switch up that happens when they play. And so let's find out what they have to offer. I would also say that the Knicks lost again to the to the Lakers. It was a it was a, a hard fought game. Overtime, um, right? Overtime game yeah. uh where you know the scuttlebutt here in in LA is that they let you know, Russ played down the stretch. Vogel played Russ down the stretch of of regular time. And the Knicks caught up, went on a run, tied the game, and then they sat Russ for overtime and the yep. Lakers walked away with it. Anyway, that being said, there was a, there was a moment where uh, an assistant coach was trying to show Julius something on a laptop, you know, maybe a breakdown something. And, and, and Julius didn't want to hear it at that point and pretty aggressively was like, get this away from me. Um, and so like that is like the – Nick's drama of today, Monday, uh, February 7th. But I'll just say, like, it is it is a bad look in the context of everything that's been going on with Julius yeah. Randle and the Knicks. That said, that's the that happens all the time. It does, but it's not okay. Like, especially, you know, the thing about Julius Randle is these things keep on happening and it's not... It's not it's not like they're big things. Yeah. But it's like if you start to add those little things up, it's not great when you're not playing great. That's always the thing. It's like when you're not playing great, things seem bigger than what they are. Me personally, I've never done that when a coach is trying to show me a play or something. 
in my 11 year WNBA career, I've never done that. But then again, like my parents, like even the way I was raised, my parents would kill me if I did that. Just even if it wasn't a coach, my parents would be like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't act like that. So that's just me. So for Julius Randle, it's just like everything he does now is going to get magnified. But something that was good that I saw from the Knicks was when Grimes was talking to D'Angelo Russell and D'Angelo Russell said, yo, can he shoot? And he was like, I I can shoot. That was the, I hope y'all keep yes, I can just shoot. for that. Yes, I can shoot. Like that was the best thing ever. Keep him, I don't care what the national broadcast does. The New York Knicks need to keep that man mic'd up every single game. I would listen. Here's another, another tip for everybody out there who uh, loves the league uh, and loves athletes with personality in general. Uh, Grimes's TikTok is really good. Uh, no shocker. Re- really, really, really good actually. Like, I watch it and I'm like, does he have somebody helping him with this? Because he's really funny. On oh, TikTok. it's that That's good. All. It's like he's you good. have a social manager. Good. <laughs> yeah, he's good. Just a Grimes, man. I really hope that like he I hope that he finds a way because now with this creator economy and everything going on, I hope that he yeah. finds a way that his personality can have a stage just like him as the athlete and they don't clash and yeah. that it's just dope because you can just see it bubbling out. When I saw him mic'd up and the things that he was saying, it bubbles out of him. So there has to be a place for that somewhere. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Do you believe you will ever coach in the National Football League again? I'm hopeful that I will. I'm very hopeful. Um, but I understand the risks of, of, of uh, filing a lawsuit like this. Um, but I'm very, I'm, I am hopeful that I will. It's something I'm passionate about. Uh, but if change, if change comes, um, and if I never coach again and there's change, it, it'll be worth it. That was a clip of Brian Flores on Get Up last week, who, if you don't know by now, is suing the NFL and three of its teams, the Broncos, Dolphins, and Giants, alleging a pattern of racist hiring practices by the league and racial discrimination during his interviews with the Broncos and Giants, as well as during his tenure with Miami. Yes, that's a lot because there's a lot going on. The lawsuit filed last week sought class action status and unspecified damages from the league, and the three teams and unidentified individuals. 
Flores, who just so happens to be black, was fired last month by Miami after leading the Dolphins to a 24-25 record over three years and is coming off of a season where he won eight of his last nine games. To help unpack some of the cultural blowback we might see coming from this lawsuit, we want to bring in Justin Tinsley, senior writer with the Undefeated and Around the Horn contributor, to help sort this whole thing out. Justin, help us, please. Welcome to Take Line. Thank you all so much for having me. It's a true honor and privilege to be here, and I hope I can provide something of substance for y'all on this. Yes, you will, because I got questions. So, for instance... If you could look ahead five years ahead from now, how do you think this lawsuit will ultimately affect the culture of the NFL and its hiring practices? Because we know like the right now, things probably aren't going to change in the right now today. But do you see some optimism five years from now? That's a really good question. And I think it's two (laughs) ways to answer this. Now, how do I hope it impacts the NFL? Uh I hope it impacts it in a positive way and it creates change that, you know, really tangible a recognizable and impactful change. How do I think it's going to land? It's just, honestly, Renee, it's so hard. Like, you know, the NFL is the biggest sports league in America. It it runs itself, and they are so powerful, and they have so many layers of defense, no pun intended, of course, but they have so many layers of defense that you have to go through to even try to make an impact. So, you know, I, I do believe Brian Flores, I do believe he's digging his heels in the dirt because I do believe he wants – and not once, but I, I, he's in he's intending for a long fight with the NFL. I don't think he's just like, all right, well, here's, you know, a blank check, write what you want, and then just go away and don't say anything. I think he's doing it for the right reason. So five years from now, how do I think it's going to change? It really all depends on how far Brian Flores can take this lawsuit. But if they if they just get him stuck in litigation for the next God knows how many months, I don't know if any real verifiable change will happen. But I do hope this is the cookie that starts to crumble. You know, I hope this does lead to verifiable change. I hope. We now have as many uh, black head coaches in the NFL, which is 70 plus percent black, as there are Supreme Court justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, which is crazy, although uh, with the hiring of Mike McDaniel, who identifies as biracial, uh, that is the calculus has changed quite a bit, but not significantly. Have we seen an acceptance popularly that the Rooney rule has failed. Like, I think more than ever, it seems like people understand that this really embarrassing rule that was put into place 20 years ago in the first, like it's embarrassing that they needed this right in the first place. That is a joke (laughs) that that was necessary, but now we can, I think get to a place where we can all admit that it has failed is, do you think that people have come to that? Yeah, I do believe that. I think everyone understands. As you said, it's embarrassing that they had to put the rule in place to begin with. The rule saying, hey, you need to talk to people of color. You need to talk to black people and interview them for positions. And that rule was so bastardized and manipulated that, you know, as Brian Flores is is a legend, like, okay, we'll bring you in for an interview, but we're already, we we, we already know who we want to hire. It's a sham interview, as he said. So, you know, I, I look at I look at that and I, I know people understand whether they want to admit it or not. Everyone knows this rule is a sham and everyone understands that, you know, no, nothing has changed in the NFL over the last 20 years in terms of hiring practices. In some cases, it just got worse. So, yes, I do believe everyone understands that one, this rule needs to be abolished because, you know, these team owners and these team general managers and higher level management within the NFL, they they, they were never going to abide by the sincerity and the authenticity that the rule was put in place for. So 
So it's interesting because they're not going to abide by those things. But can we all agree that NFL owners like to win, right? And they still must really wholeheartedly feel that all the candidates that they hire as head coaches, as in these positions of power that aren't minorities, but yet the minorities are 71% of the players. I'm trying to understand the connection to where you know the players can play the game. You know the players can think the game at a high level. But why? where is the disconnect, even with the owners and the hiring process of these same players that played the game, why can't they be those upper? Because it's not that the teams don't want to win. I'm putting that out there so that people understand owners want to win. They must really feel that black coaches or black players that can graduate to become coaches and all these. Why? Like, I don't. Can you help me understand the disconnect? Where is it? I'm glad you brought this up because it kind of leads me into what I really want to say right now. Here's what I think a lot of people are either failing to connect the dots on, don't want to connect the dots, or maybe just not even know that they should connect the dots. So, you know, we've been talking about this for years, but let's just put 2020 in focus right now. And in particular, George Floyd. And we heard the Mm -hmm. terms racial reckoning and holding a mirror to society and, you know, all these things of that nature, like all these things are connected. Like we live in a housing market where, you know, racial discrimination lawsuits are on the rise. Yeah. I I read a report on CNN last year from the Committee for Better Banks that says black people in the in the most powerful commercial banks in America have a hard time getting promoted to higher senior level leadership within these banks, whereas white people, they get promoted at a much higher clip. That's Brian Flores' lawsuit in a nutshell. So when we talk about Brian Flores' lawsuit, when we talk about him trying to get a head coaching position in the NFL and, and other black people trying to be in senior leadership positions in the NFL, it's because, yes, as you said, owners want to win, but owners want to win their way. Owners want to win in a way that's going to make them feel comfortable. And unfortunately for a lot of owners in the NFL, and I believe this is this is probably true about the majority of sports. This is true about the majority of like big time corporations like they want to win but they want to win on their own dime they want to win with Mm. a system that feels comfortable to them so anything outside of that system may just feel like oh no i i i I can't i can't do that because i'm not comfortable doing that i want to win my way so that's how i feel i I can't say that's the root cause but i feel very confident you know in that assertion and in that answer so that makes a lot of sense i'll say i'm struck by let's zoom out for a second I, I think you you did it. You did it a, a really great job. I think kind of outlining the shape and the years long shape of this, the shape of this that goes back. I mean, to the beginning of this country. So the NFL released a statement in the wake of uh, the lawsuit uh, being filed, which said in part, and I'm going to paraphrase, that they are deeply committed to diversity. It's part of their core commitment. There are 30 plus 32, I think, you know, majority owners in the NFL. They are some of the most rich and powerful people in the country. When they care about something, when people of that ilk care about a thing and want something to happen, they just make it happen because they're rich and powerful and they could do it very easily. It's very easy for them. You know it when they care about something. Mm -hmm. It's wild to me that they can say we are committed to this and yet the actual evidence on the ground does not exist. What how can you jump from we are deeply committed to diversity as part of our core ethos to to no evidence of that anywhere to be found. How can we get, how is that leap possible? <laughs> I don't know why I'm asking you, but it's We're just, I can't stop thinking about it. Questions, Justin, answer it, fix it, make it make sense. <laughs> I don't know. 
it, it's hard to make it make sense because it doesn't make sense. But you just you mentioned that statement, and honestly, man, it's it's hard to see that statement for 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 what it is. It's just yeah. words on a piece of paper that were sent out to all thirty two teams. They were sent out to various media outlets. But you know, again, it's just words on a piece of paper. And the main question I have is this: and we've had this conversation again to go back to 2020. We talk about Breonna Taylor. We talk about George Floyd. Like, how can you trust the police to police the police? Just take out the police and put NFL. Like, how can you trust the NFL to police the NFL? Like, they they won't do it. And to me, especially over the last decade, the NFL for and you know this. We're having this conversation in the midst of, of what I believe is one of the great NFL postseasons of all time. Like oh, all yeah, the games have sure. been incredible. Definitely. I mean, that divisional round was the best weekend of football that I've seen oh. in my life. And and to be having this conversation, which is a very necessary conversation, it's like this is just prototypical NFL. If we go back over the last decade, they've been way more reactive than proactive. We can go back to CTE and head injuries. We can go <laughs> to the very serious discussions we had around domestic violence in the NFL. Colin Kaepernick, this is just more of the same. Like, this isn't some secret here. You know, it's not like being in being an NFL head coach is a secret position where, you know, nobody sees this, this person. Like, outside of the quarterback, it's the most recognizable person on the football team in a lot of cases. So, like, yep. we know these people are talented. We we know Eric Bieniemy and Byron Leftwich have interviewed multiple yes. times. And I, I saw the writer Howard Bryant pose on Twitter, and it's like, people try to use their high-powered offenses in Tampa Bay and Kansas City against them, where it's just like, what has Josh McDaniels done without Tom Brady? Literally the greatest quarterback of all time. Like, they still get positioned. So, you know, like, it, it's it, this isn't some secret. Like, we we knew this was happening. It's right here. So for them to release that statement, it's kind, it's honestly disingenuous, and it's honestly a slap in the face for any for anybody that can think on their own. It's like, it's the, it, I look at it like this. One of my favorite comedians of all time is, of course, Richard Pryor. I think everybody loves Richard Pryor. <laughs> yeah. On his short-lived show, The Richard Pryor Show, it used to come on NBC in 1977. One of the funniest skits was him playing the first black president. And one of the questions asked at a press conference was, what is he going to do to get more black quarterbacks in the NFL? And he has a line in there, as long as I'm president and as long as his football is going to be black in it somewhere, whether it's quarterbacks, head coaches, GMs, owners. And like he was making a joke, but he really brought that conversation to America's couch. You know, like, you know, when people say like, oh, well, we need the Rooney rule to do this. Like, no, you don't like the the black candidates are out there. You just have to interview them. Bomani Jones said something the other day that I really, really agree with. Like, we have to stop saying create a pipeline for, for stuff like this. Because when you say create a pipeline, it means, like, the people aren't there yet. We need to create the people. No, the people are right there. You just mm-hmm. need to interview them. You need to give them this position of power that is a coach and give them this position of power of leader of men in terms of the case, in case of the NFL. Like, And so for Roger Goodell to come out and release this memo – it's kind of, again, it's disingenuous, it's slap in the face, and it, honestly, it's unacceptable for him to release a statement like that because you knew this issue was going on. You knew it was right there, but you did nothing about it until somebody opened Pandora's box, and now here we are. And now this discussion is is running in tandem with what should be a very, very exciting Super Bowl. So I'm I'm curious. Yeah, I couldn't have. Ooh, let me, in yeah. case you didn't hear, okay? In case you didn't hear, okay? I'm curious. What do you make of Bill Belichick in this whole thing? Like, what, oh, what man. did he have to do with the whole, with the, with anything going on? But like, how did, like, what do you just make of that? Because I feel like that is, this is a part of the problem as well. Yeah. 
classic Brian Brian mix up by our oh, man. Like, <laughs> like I know. Imagine you being that person texting though. Like imagine your bill for a second. Can you imagine? I would have been screaming in the house like, baby. We've all like whether it was. <laughs> Go back to high school and like you know you you call you accidentally pocket dial somebody yeah. and he's like damn I hope I didn't say anything that I, that I shouldn't say like we've all been in a situation where like ah oh, damn I replied all to that email I meant to just reply to one person like so we like when this when this Brian Flores lawsuit first became news I like I couldn't believe the Bill Belichick angle of it. I'm like is this real or did like the Onion write this. <laughs> The lines are getting very blurry. Like that's how good the <laughs> really onion is at their job for the yeah. record. I'm not that's not a knock on them at no, all. No, yeah, no. You don't know what's real and fake anymore for real. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> he sent the wrong text. He sent the right text to the wrong Brian. Right. Like, I'm like, wow. And but like when you read the text message, like when you see the screenshots, like you laugh and you say, Wow. But then, like, you realize, like, the humanistic element of it. Like, this is yeah. a guy, Brian Flores, who thought he was interviewing for a job on equal playing field. And then to find out from his former coach, Bill Belichick, like, oh, so, sorry, wrong Brian. And just to hear him say, thanks, Bill, at oh, the end of that, like, yeah, you, that's you felt the hurt in that. It was because like, you could feel the excitement as yeah. well when he was like, yeah, man, I really feel like I got a chance. Yeah. And that was the part. It was that, like that hurt. the Real yeah. excitement of wow! I think I have a real opportunity where somebody's not going to pay me to lose opportunity. Like that's you crazy, feel, right? You can yeah. feel that energy all the way to like you said the end when it was like, oh, thanks, Bill. Yeah, it was that, just like, like that hurt. That hurt because we we've all been in a situation where you know we get our hopes up for something and then you know the rug is pulled out from underneath us. Like we we understand that feeling. You know what that hurt feels yes. like, and we, you don't wish that type of hurt on anybody, mm. especially. You know, with with the, something as major as uh, a head football coach in the NFL, you know what I mean. And so it, that that hurt because you got to wonder like how many other black candidates have had that that feeling like, oh man, I'm going yeah. to interview for the Vikings today. Like I'm going, yeah. in, I'm gonna give it my best shot. I'm gonna interview well, and then you, you they that, don't probably, know that they never stood a chance. They, they never stood a chance. They never stood a chance. And the NFL could be like, oh, this was just a one-off. This doesn't happen. Like, how do you know? Yeah, come on. Yeah, yeah. Come All right, on. come on, man. Like, I was born at night. I wasn't born last night. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, you, 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 mentioned, you mentioned the league being reactive. I think that's exactly right. And one of the things the league reacts to uh, very strongly is this idea of, of disruptions, of anything that might penetrate the kind of, like, sanctity of the locker room or the way a, a, an organization is run in general. And I think part of that, is and what's central to this is that for whatever reason, GMs, owners view black head coaches, even uh, black coordinators, as riskier propositions than their white counterparts, right? Yeah. And I think that plays into it with Flores's uh, experience. He alleges that he was asked to tank games, that he, he was offered a hundred thousand dollar bounty per game if he if he would lose this, uh, and then has talked about how, you know, as a black head coach, that would hit differently on his resume than perhaps uh, sure. some of his white colleagues. Why is that? Why do why do the people who run organizations feel that? Black coordinators, black head coaches are inherently riskier than their white counterparts. What is that? 
I mean, I think that's just really indicative of like society's viewpoint of the black body. Like a lot of people feel like black people aren't smart enough to do that job. And, you know, sometimes when these organizations hire a black coach, sometimes I do wonder if it's for them to just to pat themselves on the back. Like, oh, look, I hired a black guy. You know what I mean? Look at me. Yeah. I, I'm I'm progressive. I hired a black guy. Like I would I would I struggle to understand or know the depths of the sin- sincerity of them hiring a a candidate of color, in particular a black candidate, because we've seen the history. We've seen the text messages. We 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 know what exists. And I, I think this is just indicative of, you know, NFL owners, like you said, billionaires, some of the most powerful people in America, and they had they have their their biases. And in 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 a lot of cases, I believe it's racial. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard not to think otherwise, you know, like as, as Renee said this when we kicked everything off, like 71 percent of the league are people of color, black people. You know what I mean? And so, you know, you, you, they're good enough to put on the field and run into each other and, you know, honestly risk their lives and health every single play. They're, they're good enough to perform at halftime, which is another issue altogether. They're good enough to do this. But the moment. Black people start saying like, "Hey, I want to advance up the corporate ranks. I I want to I want to be a GM of a team. You know, I want to be the head coach of a team." Then it's like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" Like, you're good enough to do all this, but but the moment you start asking for power, because that's yeah. what this yeah. is all about. It's about oh, yeah. power. And once you the, the these these owners in these front offices, they don't want to relinquish that power because that power is intoxicating, man. And if you're <laughs> going to give power to somebody, you're going to give it to somebody. You're going to feel more comfortable in giving it to somebody who looks like you, who has the same viewpoint on society as you. You start giving it to a person who doesn't look like you, in particular, for the sake of this conversation, a black person. Then it's, you know, they they can't wrap their brains around it. It's like you said, a riskier move. Like, how is this a riskier move? Like, how is it like proven? It's proven. Like, no. Mike Tomlin. What about Mike Tomlin? Does anybody care about didn't he just break a record recently about being amazing and being a coach? And he just so happens to be black. It was crazy, Renee. Like he's been coaching the Steelers for 15 years. He won a Super Bowl in, I believe, mm-hmm. 2009 when the Steelers beat the uh, Cardinals. I believe. Yes. So he did that. He's never had a losing season. The worst he's ever been is, is 500. And, you know, that's the standard for a black coach. Like you basically have to be perfect. Like we, we've seen it. Like, again, what has Josh McDaniels done to warn another coaching position over <laughs> yeah. Eric Bieniemy or Byron Leftwich, who have orchestrated two of the most powerful offenses we've seen in NFL history? Like, what have they done? Well, like, what has he done over them? So you, you, you can't help but ask these questions. So, and it's just so much of America doesn't believe black people are smart enough to hold these positions. Just, to, just to be frank, like I, I'm gonna keep it a buck with you. That's what it is. His name is Justin Tinsley. He's a senior writer with The Undefeated and a contributor to Around the Horn. Justin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you all for having me. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Prominent civil rights lawyers Cyrus Mary and Johnny Cochran blitzed the NFL and said they'd sue the league if it didn't change its ways, a story we covered in 2002. So people say all the time, well, you know, we need time, Brian. You know what? They've taken the time of our grandparents, our time. They've taken our children's time. It's time to do something about it. You were just listening to a clip of Johnny Cochran from 2002 on Real Sports talking with Brian Gummel, explaining why the time has come for change in the NFL's hiring practices. That was a year before the league instituted the Rooney Rule, the rule which, among other things, requires teams to interview at least two minority candidates for head coach openings. Uh, there's a lot going on with the legality of Brian Flores's uh, very complex case against the NFL. So we'd like nothing more than to welcome Gabe Feldman, sports law professor at Tulane University and host of the Between the Lines podcast, to help us out with some of the legal ramifications here. Gabe, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Take Line. Thanks for having me on. How tough a case is this going to be for Flores to win? What kind of evidentiary uh, goalposts is he going to have to clear in order to, to win this case? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult case. So he's bringing two related claims. One is a racial discrimination claim under the Civil Rights Act that's basically saying that he was fired or not hired because he's black, that that was the motivating factor, essentially. And the other one is related to an employment discrimination claim, again, also saying that he was not hired or he was fired because he was black. But the difference with that employment discrimination claim is he can prove it either with evidence that but for his race, he would have been hired or would not have been fired, or that even if there is no actual racial discrimination, that in practice, the way that the rule has worked or the way that the hiring and firing has worked has had a disparate impact on minorities. So there's a difference between actually showing the affirmative evidence of racial discrimination versus the disparate impact of their hiring and firing. So either way, there's got to be some evidence of racial discrimination against Brian Flores. There's something that caught my eye about all of this. It was the game tanking part of it where you're actually paying somebody or alluding to the fact that you would like to pay a coach to not win a game. Now, there's a lawsuit against three different teams and the NFL. Which one do you think has the most oomph behind it, I would say. Like, which one? Because to me, that one is like a, oh, I can't believe it. As a player, you know, like that to me, I wouldn't even want to play for an organization that you know is going to tank like that. But which one has the most legal, I would say, evidence behind it? Yeah, I mean, right now, there's not a lot of direct evidence of racial discrimination. There, there's a lot of facts in there. There's a lot of allegations. And there's a lot of discussion about the bad treatment of other black coaches and how black coaches are not being hired and how they're the last one hired, they're the first one fired, that, uh, as Jason said, there was one coach who was black when the Rooney Rule was first put in place. And right now, there is one coach who is black, maybe two if Lovey Smith officially gets hired. Um, but right. that's 
damning for the NFL. The question is whether it rises to the level of illegal. And even if there are violations potentially of the Rooney rule, it doesn't mean that they have proven that they violated the law. The tanking, the pay for tanking is in some ways the much more serious allegation, not to suggest that tanking is more serious than racial discrimination, but in terms of the integrity of the game and that allegation itself, that if the owner of the Dolphins really did offer Brian Flores $100,000 to lose each game, then that by itself is illegal. It's not illegal as a racial discrimination claim. It's illegal as a sports bribery claim. And there have been athletes Mm. and coaches who have gone to jail for that. So I I think it's a little bit hard for people to wrap their minds around the fact that someone like the owner of the Dolphins might go to jail. Um, And the thought is, well, lots of teams tank in the NBA and the NFL. But even if they tank, they don't pay their coaches or their players to tank. That's a big difference. That's like the Black Sox scandal. I mean, that gets to the very nature of sports and what makes sports so popular is the uncertainty of outcome and competitive balance and everything the leagues do to protect the integrity of the game. This would be really, really damaging to the NFL and potentially legally damaging to the Dolphins and other teams who may be doing the same thing. It's just, again, hard to imagine. You know, as a fan, you say, well, they might want to tank. But the players are still going to be trying hard. The coaches are still going to be coaching hard. But to think that yeah. a coach may actually be rewarded financially for losing is, again, just bad on every level for the NFL. Gabe, real quick, is that is that realistic that the owner, like, because we're talking about billionaires here, it's not really realistic that anything is going to, like, jail time is not a realistic thing that we're thinking about here, are we? Uh, well, it, it depends. I mean, it, it's, been, it's, it's an allegation in a complaint. It's not proven. So we don't know. But if it were true, if there's evidence of it, or if it opens the door to further investigation, then yes. I mean, if you look at some of the people who are getting sentenced to jail in the uh, Varsity Blues scandal, these are folks who are wealthier than the wealthiest, and they're going to jail because they defrauded universities and made it look like their kids were athletes. So it could happen. Again, there's a long stretch between one statement right. and a complaint and Stephen Ross actually going to jail. But if this is true, then yes, there is potential jail time and significant legal liability for him. Uh, Gabe, you, you bring up uh, something important, which is that it feels like, uh, of course, Flores would love to win his case. Um, and, you know, me personally, I feel like I, I would love to see him win his case. But I think we've seen with... Uh, John Gruden's resignation, for instance, that the as evidence comes up in discovery on a related case, that can be as damaging to the NFL's goals and image as an actual judgment. Now, we've got two different complaints here, but they could both be potentially quite damaging if evidence is unearthed. And then you add into the fact that, you know, the NFL and sports in general has grown closer to gambling over the over recent years, the way that could amplify concerns around competitive balance and whether someone's tanking games on purpose. That is makes that even potentially more explosive, all of which is to say Do you have a sense on whether this actually goes to trial? I I feel like the NFL wants more than anything for no discovery to be enacted in this. They don't want emails coming out. They don't want texts coming. They don't want this even moving down the tracks. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. And if you think about their their motto of protecting the shield, I think that 
They don't talk about trying to avoid <laughs> yeah. discovery as part of protecting right. the shield, but but that is part of it. And this is about again protecting the integrity of the game, the integrity of the owners. We know if there's any organization that's relatively large that has older people in in positions of power, and you dig through their emails, you're going to find bad stuff. No matter what, we we know that, and we know from emails that have come out that there's bad stuff in there. So yes, they they are terrified of discovery, as most defendants are. This is not unique to the NFL, but there are two moves that the NFL will try to make to try to avoid discovery. One is they'll try to just dismiss the case and say there's nothing in that complaint. There might be lots of bad stuff, but none of it is an, uh, states a claim for a legal violation. So just kick out the case. But even before that, they'll probably try to move the case into arbitration which is where most of the legal battles take place with the NFL and the players and coaches and owners, because there are provisions in the coaching contracts in the NFL constitution and bylaws in the CBA that say, if you have any dispute, it gets resolved through arbitration. And if it's through arbitration, that means there is no public discovery. That means there is no public mm-hmm. trial. We've seen those fights in Tom Brady. We've seen it with Ray Rice. We've seen it with Ezekiel Elliott. We've seen it with all the high profile cases where the NFL desperately wants to keep this out of the public eye. They want to push it in arbitration. And even more so, as as people probably know, the arbitrator, or at least the person who could be the arbitrator to hear these claims is Roger Goodell. He has that power (laughs) under the league rules to investigate (laughs) and then hear and decide these disputes. Now, I think it would be crazy for Roger Goodell if they do get this in arbitration for him to hear this case and not delegate it to somebody else, uh, whether it's Paul Taglubu or or a former federal judge. But that's a possibility. And so fairness is only what you get from what you bargain for, from what you agree to, from what you enter into a contract. Right? The the law is bound in some ways or, or limited by the contractual rights of the different parties. And most of these rights tip heavily in favor of the NFL. So yes, even if Brian Flores cannot win this case, it would be a victory if they get to discovery. And if they get close to discovery, the sense is the NFL will present a very favorable settlement offer to Brian Flores. But it seems like from what I've heard and from what I've read, Flores may not want the settlement, that, that he's doing this to make the point, to make the change. He's doing this for social justice, for racial justice, not for monetary gain, because otherwise, you know, it's fairly amazing that a 40-year-old in the beginning of his coaching career might risk it all on a case that might go to trial, even if it does go to trial, he might lose or might get pushed to arbitration. That's a lot of sacrifice for one man to make uh, when there have obviously been many, many others who've come before him who, if not intentionally, have been discriminated against, certainly have received unfavorable treatment because they're a minority. You know, couldn't like you talked about the other parties involved, and it's it's really interesting because there's a party involved in all of this that I can't quite understand why, and it's Bill Belichick. So I'm really curious about when it comes into the legalities of it all. And he's, you know, accidentally sending the wrong text. He got a, you know, the <laughs> misidentification of Brian. We we understood that something happened there. But what he said in those texts, does that have any, does that hold any weight legally that he knew before the people were interviewed who already got the job? Does that go on to kind of 
explain what Brian Flores was talking about or that still doesn't talk about race? Like, because I know the thing is, can you prove that it was race? So where does Bill Belichick's text fall in the line of all of this? Yeah, I'll say a couple of things. As a lifelong Jets fan who's <laughs> suffered through Bill Belichick for, for a long time, uh, yeah. there's some justice here. But, but it is very odd <laughs> that someone like Bill Belichick, who seems to do everything intentionally, would, would make this kind of mistake. But I do think it is a very noisy sideshow that has little legal impact. If anything, it just says that the Giants had maybe made their decision to hire Dayball before they had hired uh, interviewed Flores. That happens all the time in lots of professions, um, lots of interviews. It doesn't mean it's illegal. It, it may mean that they violated the Rooney rule, and it may mean that Flores' interview was a sham. And so maybe there can be discipline under the the NFL rules, but it doesn't suggest at all any racial discrimination. Maybe as part of a bunch of other pieces of evidence, it could, but by itself, it's just embarrassing for Bill Belichick. It got a lot of discussion in the press. I think it did probably what Brian Flores and his lawyers wanted to do is it got a lot of people talking about the case. Same thing with the the pay for tanking violation. May not directly relate to racial discrimination, but got a lot of people talking about the case and incentivized the NFL to make this go away. So just real quick, so even though he sent that and is talking about hiring practices, isn't that like, is this again one of those, it's maybe not a race problem, but bringing people in after the job is already, I mean, the way he was texting, that job was, it's a wrap. They was already having him fill out his W-2s, okay? The other Brian was already filling out his paperwork. So, I mean, even with the league and all of the hiring malpractice, like, that's not a bigger deal. It's just like, that's normal just to bring people in when the job is already gone. That's a normal thing. Yeah. It, and I think the NFL would say, or or the Giants would say, it wasn't a done deal. Right? Belichick didn't know it was a done deal. Yeah, we had a favorite going into it, but we wanted to give Flores his fair shake. And that mm-hmm. usually ownership does have a candidate in mind. And, and frankly, that's part of what leads to the unconscious bias and the systemic discrimination is you hire who you know. And in football, the owners tend to know white coaches. Um, So they end up hiring white coaches. So I think it's symptomatic of the racial discrimination, but it is common practice in a lot of jobs. It's maybe not the greatest practice. It's maybe not great for the team's reputation, but there's not been enforcement of the Rooney rule since 2003. There's been one case, the Detroit Lions, who got fined for violating the Rooney rule. That's it. So I I think if, if the NFL, you know, they could make this go away by, finding the Giants, and then they'll do an independent report, report and investigation. Um, they'll do all those, those sorts of things. But unless there is some real teeth to this, unless there's some real ramifications for the NFL, it's hard to see anything changing substantively and that the management and owners will keep hiring who they want to hire. And in 10 years, we might be in the same position where we still only have one black head coach, despite the fact that 70% of the players are minorities. Unreal. Wow. Well, he his name is Gabe Feldman. He's a sports law professor at Tulane, host of the Between the Lines podcast. You can find him on Twitter at Sports Law Guy. Gabe, thank you so much for joining Take Line. Yes, Gabe. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. You know what that sound means. It's time for Buzzer Beaters, where we talk about the stories we didn't cover in the show because of time. Renee, what do you have? All right. So for my buzzer beater this week, 
We have Muchos Montgomery's and it's just a family Let's go! vlog. Yes, sir. It's a family vlog. So we be we be moving around most of the time as for business, but I started to realize that we bump into the who's who of the world when we're moving around. And it's just like, we'll casually be sitting next to Lonnie Love and we casually <laughs> will be hanging out with Killer Mike. So we just started to like on our iPhones, just film and on our sense, like just on our cell phones, we just started to film our escapades, whether it's our holidays, NBA All-Star, WNBA All-Star, the whole fam is on there, cousins, nephews, nieces, but it's Muchos Montgomery's on YouTube and we're just every Friday night. We just go on an adventure. What you got, Jason? Well, first of all, can you get any free business tips that you can give, <laughs> that you can bless us with? Just like yeah. a small, a small, something small, some small piece of advice to bless I us with? I would say, no, definitely. Thank you for asking that because I would just say, everybody, you are your own platform. So things like where you go, what you do, just you can make your own content. Everybody thinks that it's so hard to become your own brand. You already are your own brand. So whatever you do, just you build it yourself. Like that's the thing I think in this new age is like everybody's their own brand. You don't need anyone else. It might take longer to produce your content if you're doing it by yourself, but still do it. Still start it. Just get it doing. Like that's how Muchos literally started. Muchos Montgomery's is like, let's just start filming and see what happens. Uh, my buzzer beater is, so I saw the, the new Jackass movie, Jackass. And it was exactly what I needed in 90, it was 90 minutes of medicine. (laughs) I laughed to the point that my ribs were hurting. I can't even get into the chaotic transcendent nature of how funny some of this shit was. I'll just say this. This is we're going through really difficult times right now. We all know that. So angst-ridden times, the economy, uh-huh. uh, public health, social justice, various other concerns, the ecological concerns. We have a lot of things on our mind. There is was something so insanely positive and healing about mm-hmm. watching men willingly allow themselves to be clawed by hungry bears, truly what? like a hungry bear so that you could take your mind off of it. It felt like it, you know, it was like they were taking in their body, <laughs> taking on the pain and trauma of the world so that for 90 minutes, you could just like have a completely blank mind and laugh hysterically. It was so unbelievably funny. And I can't describe the things that happened because it would just, everything would be bleeped, but it was great. And that's all. If you like Jackass, if you like, I used to watch the show every now and then because I just couldn't believe what they would do to themselves. But wow. You cannot believe the stuff that they do this time. Steve O's still on there? Steve O, man. Steve O, (laughs) here's a good example of of what I'm talking about. They had a, a guy jump on a pogo stick. Onto Steve O's junk. Steve O's still at it again. Steve O's Steve Steve oh, still at it. And the other thing is, I'll just say this too. There's a lot of, like, there's some great actors out here, great acting tradition in popular Western popular culture. When you see real fear, you know it and you <laughs> feel it. And it's, there's no way to act it. When you see someone tied to a chair and a bear comes in the room, uh-uh. that is no, fear. sir. That is fear and you feel it deep in your bones, like in a, on a primal level where you're just like, that's real. That's legit. And if you like that content, go see it because you will laugh. That's it. 
that's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on your podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA, which is All every cap. Friday. Check it out. <laughs> Rachel's <Let's> Montgomery. <laughs> Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Our contributing producers are Caroline Reston, Elijah Cohn, and Jason Gallagher. Engineering, editing, and sound design by Sarah Gibble-Laska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.